lock and load. This is Steve Dace. The Steve Dace Show. And greetings. Happy Thursday. Thanks for tuning in here today, live and on demand on Blaze TV, radio, and podcast. I am Steve Dace. Aaron McIntyre and Todd Erzin are here with me as well. Steve at SteveDace.com is how you can email the program if you'd like to let us know what you think about what we think. That's D-E-A-C-E. Like us on Facebook, where they apparently are accepting likes right now, at least for a limited time. Uh, you can also follow us on Twitter at Steve Dace Show, and the last name is D-E-A-C-E. And then if you're looking for clips of this show that you can sample or share, go to YouTube.com slash Steve Dace. YouTube.com slash Steve Dace. And remember, there has never been a better time to subscribe to Blaze TV than right now. Let's face it, you need all the real news you can get, number one. And number two, we made it the most affordable ever as well. $30 off an annual subscription right now. Comes out to about $5 and change a month. I have to believe we're worth at least that. Otherwise, why go on? And if we're not, at least somebody else here is at the blaze and you get all the somebody else's for five dollars and about 86 cents a month right now at blaze tv.com slash dace blaze tv.com slash dace use the promo code steve promo code steve david benham's going to join us next hour to talk about getting arrested for doing the right thing also three non-political questions theology thursday coming your way as well but before we get to all of that here's aaron's rundown of what happened while we were away. What happened while we were away brought to you by a very serious development. One of the biggest rating hits um, of the coronavirus, aside from these briefings, has been a show on Netflix called uh, Tiger King. Yeah. And uh, the man who's the star of this is a former zoo owner who's serving a 22-year prison sentence. Uh, he's asking you for a pardon, saying he was unfairly convicted. I don't know. I know nothing about it. He has 22 years for what? What did he do? Uh, he allegedly hired someone to murder an animal rights activist, but he said that he didn't do that. And he was. You think he didn't do it? Are you on his side? Uh, well, I, are you, are you recommending a pardon? Yes, President Trump was asked about the Netflix show Tiger King during yesterday's coronavirus task force briefing. In completely unrelated news, today it was announced an additional 6.6 million Americans filed for unemployment last week. That brings the total since the shutdown started up to around 17 million Americans out of a job. Meanwhile, the all-powerful models continue to be revised downward, but not to worry, President Fauci says you still need to stay inside indefinitely. That's good news, but the thing we have to be careful of that we don't then take that good news to think that we might be able to pull back a bit. We've got to continue in many respects to redouble our efforts at the mitigation of physical separation in order to keep those numbers down and hopefully even get them lower. President Trump's economic advisor Larry Kudlow told Politico this week the economy could be shut down for another four to eight weeks. Pope Francis, your thoughts. In an email interview published Wednesday, the pontiff said about COVID-19, quote, We did not respond to the partial catastrophes. Who now speaks of the fires in Australia or remembers that 18 months ago a boat could cross the North Pole because the glaciers had all melted? Who speaks now of all the floods? I don't know if these are the revenge of nature, but they certainly are nature's responses, end quote. In Brighton, Colorado, a father was arrested for playing t-ball with his daughter because the police there deemed that they weren't social distancing. Distancing satisfactorily. On Sunday, I'm at the park with my wife, with my daughter. We're playing some T-bomb, not near anybody else. The next closest person's at least 15 feet away from me and my daughter. About 4.30, the cops show up. 
it was three officers, two cruisers. Um, next thing I know, they're telling my wife that the park is closed. We have to leave. In complete isolation in a park of about, I don't know, 30, 40 acres. But apparently that is not allowed. I kind of, I took a stand and I told them, you know, look, this is an open space. It's perfectly allowed. Um, you know, it, you telling me to leave is a violation of my constitutional rights. I am not leaving. You can issue me a citation if that's what you have to do. They then proceeded to make a threat against me saying, if you don't give us your identification, if you don't identify yourself, we're going to put you in handcuffs in front of your six-year-old daughter. The officers put me in handcuffs. You know, they got me to the patrol car and they left me sitting there for the next 10 to 15 minutes. So they get me out of the patrol car. They take the handcuffs off me. Um, so I was released, free to go. No citations issued. Um, no apologies issued. And now Dr. Jay Bhattacharya. He's a professor of medicine at Stanford and has his doctorate in economics. What's Dr. Fauci up to when he says this is 10 times more lethal than the flu. He cannot know that. He should not be saying that. He cannot know, can he? Uh, he doesn't but know. He doesn't know. Yeah, and All he right. can't know because nobody has done the, the serologic, sorry, sorry to use check but like the serologic test means how many people in the population have antibodies to the virus. So that's what you need to know. Okay. No test so. has been done like that. So we, he can't know that. Nobody knows that. So we should be honest about that. Uh, and we should be honest with, about that with people who, who make these policy decisions when we're making them. Uh, it, in a sense, like people plug the, the worst case into, those, into their models. They project forward and say two to four million deaths. Newspapers pick up the two to four million deaths. Politicians have to respond. Um, and the scientific basis for that projection is, is completely... There's, there isn't, there, there's no study underlying that scientific projection. And now checking in on the newly minted presumptive nominee for the Democratic presidential primary, Joe Biden. We have to make sure everyone has access to maintain and maintain affordable health insurance coverage. We should be making it easier, not harder, to make sure to make sense to, you know, let me put it another way. It makes no sense. And that's what happened while we were away. <laughs> Oh my goodness! I had not seen that. Neither had I. Oh my gosh! Our friends over at Patriot Mobile. I had to get my composure after that for a second. I apologize. Um, Why? He's the, not. No, for, and he's I mean, running I, for president of the United States. Doesn't matter. Remember, I told you yesterday you're a bad influence. But uh, it, for the dead air. I, I had to gather myself for a second. I had not seen that video and it took my breath away. And I just, whew. our friends over at Patriot Mobile have a special announcement right now to help Americans stay in touch with your loved ones during a difficult time. They have reduced their prices even further. Right now, their US-based team can design you a customized family mobile phone plan for 25 bucks a month, $35 a month, $45 a month, or $55 a month. Uh, these rates will never charge you hidden fees either. And unlike the big mobile companies, they won't send your hard-earned money to Planned Parenthood, gun grabbers, or people who just think you need to be indefinitely locked down until we have a vaccine we may never have that vaccinates all 8 million people. 
Okay. Uh, that's because Patriot Mobile only supports conservative values that you believe in. So switching is easy. You can keep your phone number, bring your phone with you, even buy a new one if you want. But you can join their family of freedom-loving Americans today and get a free activation plus a free gift. A free activation plus a free gift, not to mention their lowest rates ever. At 972-PATRIOT, that's 972-PATRIOT, or go online to patriotmobile.com slash Steve. That's patriotmobile.com slash Steve. I, I want to I, I do a bit of an economics lesson today. Can, can we do that? Uh, it doesn't I, seem to be allowed anywhere else. Yeah, I, I think one is 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 needed today. Um, we've got another rash of unemployment claims that have been made, and the number as it stands right now and climbing is seventeen million. Seventeen million and climbing, and that that doesn't account for people who have yet to file for whatever reason, or the backlog of those applications they have yet to get to. We all saw the video in Florida yesterday of people standing in line waiting to file for unemployment, for example. So the number is probably closer to uh, closer to 20 million is, is probably where the number actually is. And yet Larry Kudlow coming out yesterday saying on behalf of the White House that uh, these shutdowns with the economy may go on for another four to eight weeks. Folks, I'm, I'm here to tell you, they don't have four to eight weeks. They don't. They, they just don't. Not if, they, not if they'd like to get reelected. Because his numbers are not good. And I'm even accounting, when I look at the numbers, I'm even accounting for bias Skewed polls. I mean, the ridiculous CNN poll today. I mean, uh, you can't. You're always going to have a higher sample of the side that's the more energetic. I've explained that before, right? Yes. In 2018 or in 2014, you know, Democrats com complained we had skewed polls because they were oversampling Republicans. But that's part of the 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 process is you're sampling who is also most responsive because they're the most energetic, right? So a major network putting out a plus ten Democratic poll in a presidential election is just a clown show, but that's CNN. But let's, 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 let's take, let's give that a 70% handicap. Still not good. And, and what's happened here is exactly what I feared when the president extended the deadline. He has put himself and cornered himself politically in a position where right now with the American people, he can only lose and Fauci Burks can only win. Especially the longer this goes on, the, and, and the, the less justifiable this is. The more garbage these models become, they're out of things to talk about. I mean, they're out of things to talk about really right now because the only thing to talk about other than circling the drain is what? Reopening the economy. But they're not doing that. So there's nothing else to talk about. So let's spend a few minutes talking about Tiger King. Let's spend a few minutes yesterday talking about Sleepy Joe. I was talking this morning with somebody, a name a lot of you would know, who is a great admirer of this president. He is, he's very concerned over what he has seen the last few days. Because 
This has always been the case with Donald Trump. Whether you love him or not, for the, for the majority of Americans, his personality is grating with overexposure. The truth of the matter is most people's personalities are grating with overexposure. <laughs> All right. The saying familiarity breeds contempt was true long before we knew what a President Trump was. Shakespeare beat us on that one by about four centuries. OK, so uh, just about everybody's personality is grating with overexposure. OK, um, some of us uh, maybe more so than others. But now we're riffing on Sleepy Joe. Just. All people want to know is, are you saving lives? And when can you give me my life back? Anything other than that is, is a loss leader for him to discuss. And so without mass hospital overruns, which we don't have, we're, I saw today, hospital in Oklahoma, in Oklahoma, 100-year-old hospital, over 200 hospital beds shutting down today, closed its doors today, lack of business. We're laying all these people off in our medical system all over the country. So our hospitals are not overrun. A few of them are in, in select areas, but across the country, they are just not. They don't even need all the hospital beds that the models told us New York City, the hot zone, was going to need today. They don't even need those. And, and so the only other topic to then switch to is getting America going again, which we're not doing. And so now we're distracted. We're on side topics. And Fauci Burks get to get up there. They look more dignified. They look like they're the adults while they're talking about the racial disparity of coronavirus. I told you a week, it's almost two weeks ago when he made this mistake. In my opinion, mistake. He, he, he's going to corner himself politically so that he can only lose and Fauci can only win. He needs to reverse this dynamic. He must do this. And the only way to do this is to change the conversation. And the way you change the conversation is you change the conversation into getting America back going again. The idea that we're just going to sit around and wait until there aren't any more infections and this virus is defeated is not realistic. I, I know that's what bureaucrats think. Just, hey, fight in Afghanistan and Iraq until the last jihadist is dead. Well, the, the last jihadist hasn't been dead since the 7th century. All right, when we we were all sick of Afghanistan and Iraq before anybody knew what an ISIS was or whether it was ISIS or ISIL. The idea that there's a perfect outcome to these scenarios just is not true. This is a fallen world. Now they're trying to out now there's all kinds of headlines and 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 tweets from the professional journalism class today um retconning these models. Oh, the idea that these uh, models were wrong is not true. We just obeyed them. And look what happened when the models were assuming all along that we were going to reach ideal maximum social distancing. They didn't just decide this. And, and, and that's through May 31st. The end of May is the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation model. It was doing this all along. You're being gaslighted on that, just like you were on the Imperial College debunked study a couple of weeks ago. And now you're sitting here with 20 million people unemployed. And here's the other part of this you need to be made aware of if you're not already. You can still go shop at Target and Walmart. But understand that many of these businesses that are impacted cannot just hit pause and play. They're not liquid like that. 
We talked about AMC theaters yesterday. They're actually the largest theater chain. I thought they were the second largest. They're the largest one. And Walmart analysts are driving down their stock right now because if theaters don't open until the end of August, they see bankruptcy because they're not liquid enough to, to pay for all that brick and mortar for all those screens around the country. Now, consider 90 plus percent. I think the number is actually like 96 percent, but I'm not sure what the exact number is. I just know it's more than 90 percent of businesses in America have 500 or fewer employees. Well over 90 percent. Which means this idea that the president's just going to call in the Walmart CEO, the you know Amazon guy, Mark Cuban. You know what I'm saying? We're just right. going to call in the top 15, 20 guys and give them a big you know fat tax cut, and they're all going to hire a hundred thousand new people, and that's going to get us going in. No, it won't. I mean, it won't it won't hurt? But yeah, that's not going to put a, that's not going to put much of a dent in 20 million and climbing unemployed. Why? Because every year in America, since at least 1993, a majority, anywhere from 54 to 65, it just depends on the year, 54 to 65 percent of the new jobs created in America every year since 1993 have been created by businesses like mine, the business that I own to own this show and hire myself and these two gentlemen. Businesses like mine have done the majority of hiring in this country to a supermajority of the hiring of this country for the last quarter century. And they're, the, and they're the types that aren't liquid, that can't just hold out. And that's even with this loan program that they're doing. So this can't last another four to eight weeks, folks. It, it just cannot. The math doesn't add up. Well, Steve, we'll just do trillions of more in stimulus packages and, and, and loan programs and things of that nature. We'll just do another new deal, Steve, like we did to get out of the Great Depression. Well, I went and looked that up today because I'm starting to see that bandied about now. All right. Well, I went and looked it up today. You know what the, 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 GDP, the GDP, gross domestic product, that's basically the total value of your economy. Do you know what the GDP to debt ratio was when FDR launched the new deal? 33% was the number. Can you imagine if we were at 33% debt to GDP right now? I mean, there, the New York Times editorial page would have all lit themselves on fire, then wetted themselves to douse the flames only so they could do it again because of just the amount of cruelty from the, the, the government that was cut to get us to that point. I mean, it would, it would shock us. You know why? Because our current debt to GDP is 107%. 107%. The first year of the New Deal, when it went from 33 to 39%, Republicans lost their damn minds. 39% debt to GDP? We might as well just become like Stalin now. What's the five-year plan, Delano? <laughs> uh, we're at 100, 107% now. And we've been over 100% debt to GDP since the Obama administration. Now, the last few years, you didn't really feel it all that much because we had pretty solid economic growth. So under Obama, you got low growth and high debt. Under Trump, you get high debt, but at least you get actual growth, right? So the last few years, you haven't felt it that much because we've been growing. And when we've been growing economically, our output is high. 
The reason I've told you for many years on this show we're not going to have this economic apocalypse like the Ron Pauls of the world predict is because we've been operating outside of a natural business cycle as a country for a generation or more. You mean like China calling in the note or yes, something yes, like that? Yeah. yeah. Be, who's going to call in the note for the most power? Who's going to walk up to the most powerful military in the world and say, we need you to really go ahead and pay a few points down on that interest? Not many. Especially, if, if not anyone, especially when that's also the largest consumer base in the world, too. We can buy more from everyone else than anyone else can. Our output ability gives us leverage. This notion that we can operate outside of natural business cycles because we can just roll over the debt every, year, every generation because we, we build more, we make more, we buy more, and we have more badass in, a, in uniform than anybody else does. The game is rigged. The game is rigged until it's not. Exactly. What happens when we shut all of that output down? What leverage do we have now? Answer, a lot less than we had before. Now, you'll counter that by saying, but Steve, a lot of the rest, pretty much the rest of the world is shut down right now too. Yes. But what happens if other parts of the world decide they're no longer going to be? Do you think the United States is better off being first to resume output or fourth or third or fifth? And it probably depends on who's first or second, right? Like if it's China who decides to resume output first. You get one answer. Like you can be fourth or fifth, but you can't, but you can't be second to China, if you know what I'm saying, right? It depends on who you lag behind. If it's a bunch of largely regional third world countries that just decide they have to survive and they've gone through Ebola and everything else, we got to get going again. That doesn't mean much to you. But if, it, if, if, if you're second in the world, but first is your primary economic rival and they decide time to start cranking this puppy up. And in fact, here's our new commodity backed yen, which has real value behind it. You know, we bought up a bunch of gold and silver from the States the last couple of decades anyway, and we're going to use that now to back our currency. It has real potent power behind it. I'm sure since this was all China's fault from the beginning and then they totally covered it up, they're not going to do anything like that. Steve, exactly. Right, right. And then I'm sure all the nations that, that China screwed over are going to, are going to treat them and, and, and say, well, even if it would benefit us, we won't do business with you. You know, like they don't want to do business with Iran. Right. 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 The only leverage we have and the only real leverage the president has is our output ability as a people. Do you want to mess with us because we can drop bombs? Do you want to mess with us because we can spend ungodly sums of money? Do you want to mess with us because we can crank out ungodly amounts of merchandise, products, goods, services, technologies, etc. But what happens when we can't do that or won't, even worse, won't do it? The conversation and debate, there is no perfect time for the president to resume the economy. There's just not. Unfortunately, we have too many people in America in power who hate America. That's just the reality. The country is too balkanized now. 
The governor of California is fine destroying the NFL franchises there, Hollywood, everything else, if he thinks it'll help him win the Democratic nomination in 2024 or beyond. And because he knows a good portion of the 40 million voters in that state are so given over to the cult of left that they'll just they'll blame Trump for this for 25 years. Don't don't make sure to tell their grandkids to blame Donald Trump for the fact California never came back. That's just their cult. Same for New York State, New Jersey, a lot of these kinds of states. And then you've got the big government guys in, on both the, in both parties um, who are going to angle the mayors and, and governors who are going to be angling and hemming and hawing. Well, I don't know if we can come back. I don't know if it's safe. Translation. I, you know what? For, 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 for 50 billion, I don't think it's safe. But for 100, it just might be. It just might be. Might be safe. You're going to have to go through all those lagging factors. That's going to be a painful process. That's going to slow down our ability to get back up to what is a prodigious output, let alone where we were at before. You need to begin that debate yesterday. Yesterday. Because if you start that debate June 1, it's going to go well into August. Maybe later. Because now, now, frankly, pardon my French, they can F you in a presidential election and just stick you with the price tag. This president needs to be reminded that he got this office not by listening to people like Anthony Fauci, but by listening to people like you. He needs to be reminded of this for his own good and especially for for ours. If he loses this, a whole lot of other people are going to lose, whether you like this president or voted for him or not. I guess you could say we're all in this together. And this math does not add up. When you're at 107% GDP and you're not outputting anything, you simply cannot just keep adding and printing trillions more dollars and, ha- and, and now not have the natural business cycle now because you're not superhuman anymore. You can't just, you're not Superman now. Hey, I, you know, I took a Krypton, kryptonite punch to the face, but let's fly up to the sky and get, the, get some more yellow sun rays and it's right back to where I was. Well, what if there isn't a yellow sun to recharge you anymore? What if it's a red sun, if you catch my pun? I mean, what's the point of Bernie Sanders running anymore? We're rationing at grocery stores. You're a prisoner in your home. Mission accomplished, man. I mean, he's, his candidacy is a redundancy at this point. The Matrix doesn't tolerate redundancies. He's a redundant program. They had to cut that off yesterday. The president needs to change the polarity of this conversation. Needs to, do, needs to do a 180 here. The, and get on the argument he can win. That's going to be painful to get to that win, but he can win that argument. He cannot win the, when do we ever come out again? He can't win that one. He can't. And even trying it is a loss. He needs to switch to the win or the argument he can win which just so happens to be the argument we need because there is no data out there that justifies what we are doing to ourselves. If we were going to see if we were going to see a million or 2 million people die, I'd sound like Eric Erickson right now. But we're not. So I don't 
And we're not even going to come close to that. And the models are wrong. And the data is bad. Everybody's acting like this original antibody study from Northern Italy yesterday. Well, they only came back with 13% of the people infected with antibodies. It, maybe that strategy that or that notion that's been here a long time isn't true. Except what, when we did the math yesterday, the amount of people that came back tested positive for antibodies so, to the announced infection rate was, what, 60 times? Yeah, if you extrapolate that over the entire country, which is the only thing we can do right now because we don't have more of these serological tests, if it's 13 to 14% of Italy's population, has already contracted and recovered from a Wuhan coronavirus the, the, and, and are asymptomatic, it's 65 times the number that have died. Yes, that have died, yes. In Italy. Would you take those odds on virtually? You know what? You, you, know take, you, you don't have those odds when you, every time you get on a plane, folks, you don't have odds that good. You don't have odds that good. You, you, you want to drive cross country to see grandmama? You don't have odds that good when you jump on the, any interstate in America. You don't have odds like that. It's enough. This is madness. And that's not even talking the petty tyranny that like that video of the dad, that's going to get worse. You know why it's going to get worse? Because whenever bureaucrats are confronted with their own BS, they get grosser. They don't ever show humility or deference unless you make them show it. That's what government by the consent of the governed means. The tyranny is going to get worse the more obvious that it is that the data is garbage. Their models are trash. They'll become more tyrannical then. All right. So it is time now for the people to arise. Now. So let me tell you about just a couple of dudes. One's named Kyle. The other one's named Josh. Both of them were losing their hair. No shock since the dreaded male pattern baldness gene ran in their families, but the way they chose to deal with that hair loss couldn't have been more different. Kyle kept putting off getting a hair loss treatment, losing more hair by the day, while Josh went to Keeps to learn how to keep his hair. Keeps offers the generic versions of the only two FDA-approved hair loss products, so they are the real deal, but because they are the generic versions, Josh saved a fortune, and all it took was a quick online consultation. He answered a few questions, snapped a few pics of his hair, and then a doctor evaluated everything and recommended the right FDA-approved hair loss treatment for josh it was then discreetly shipped to his door and keeps let josh start to save his hair without ever leaving his couch be like josh all right to get you started you can get half off your first order right now at keeps.com slash grow that's keeps.com slash grow get half off your first order right now at keeps.com slash grow Let's get to Theology Thursday. We are continuing the series that uh, we started uh, at the beginning of the year, taking you through the New Testament uh, with a class that my wife and I had been taking at our church until it got suspended with everything going on. But I decided I'm going to go ahead and finish it out to the end because we've gotten a lot of good reaction to this series, not knowing if or when uh, we'll be able to resume doing this at our church. But it's essentially an entry-level, freshman-level seminary course through the New Testament. And part of that each week is we have to write an answer to an essay question. And this week, I'm answering this question. First Peter, that's the first of Peter's epistles towards the end of the New Testament. First Peter chapter 5, verses 6 through 9 contain some, contain some important truths for everyday life. Select one truth and describe how it encourages you in your walk. So 
here's what First uh, Peter 5, 6 through 9 says. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, you know, as opposed to Anthony Fauci, uh, because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Now, it's this last part of, this, of these scriptures that I want to focus in on for Theology Thursday. Knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. There's two reasons why this week on Theology Thursday, I want us to discuss that phrase at the end. Number one, I think as Christians in America, we can become very myopic and self-centered. Uh, we, we, we can lack a, a broader-based viewpoint. And I think this pandemic that currently has much of our society shut down is an example. It's unique to us. We haven't faced something like this really before in our nation's history. Not systemic like this. Um, you had far worse, uh, worse viruses like polio, Spanish flu. Society largely went on as a whole. You'd have individual neighborhoods, even towns, communities would be quarantined. But by and large, the business of America, as Coolidge used to say, the business of America is business. By and large, the business of America went on. I mean, we still settled the West with polio raging. We still industrialized the, the, the country with polio and Spanish flu raging. We still won World War I with polio and Spanish flu raging. We still went on and won World War II with polio raging. Both of these were viruses far more vicious than any doomsday model is telling us SARS-2 coronavirus could still possibly be. Yet it didn't lead to a wholesale suspension of our most basic freedoms we take for granted. Um, however, there are believers in, in other parts of the world that are forced to wrestle with these kinds of infringements on their freedoms, or worse, frequently. Sometimes it's even a state of being of the culture in which they live. And I, I hope that when this is over, whenever that may be, I pray that this is going to encourage us to no longer take those freedoms for granted. We've often been concerned at how, how quickly our freedoms could be taken away. I think we have learned in the last 30 days they can be given away even quicker. In fact, far swifter can they be given away. And I hope that it encourages us to defend them with the same vigor many Christian brothers and sisters going back to the Mayflower had to demonstrate to pass them on to us in the first place. That's the first point I wanted to make this morning. Number two, I want to speak to my own, uh, my own the native theological tribe here for a second. Evangelicalism has gone too far in diminishing tradition. And I have talked about this for years on this show when the topic of theology has come up. If one of our main disagreements with our Catholic brethren is that we believe they too far elevate tradition to put it on, say, par or equal to Scripture— I fear evangelicalism has gone so far in diminishing tradition, we've all but vanquished it altogether. 
And where I see that, for example, is in this exact same epistle, 1 Peter, he talks about, hey, honor the king. Echoing the words that, that, that Paul uses in Romans. And so what I will often get from a lot of you solo scriptura Protestants is, well, it says right there, honor the king. So do whatever government says. Well, according to tradition, Peter was martyred and martyred upside down. If he did everything Caesar wanted him to, why was he martyred? Nero decapitated Paul, according to tradition. If, 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 Paul, if, if, if Paul was living the, the, the hermeneutical context of, of what he wrote in Romans 13, who do you think probably has a better idea of what Romans 13 means? You? Or the guy who wrote those words? Who do you think? Throwing that out there. Aaron, you're a fellow evangelical. Who's probably got a better idea of what the context is of Romans 13? Some guy uh, that's uh, grabbing his ankles for Caesar right now in his basement because that's the literal interpretation of those words, according to him, mm -hmm. or the guy that actually wrote the literal interpretation of those words. Who do you think? Probably the guy who put pen to parchment. Yeah, probably that guy. Well, why did he, he get beheaded? If that's what he meant, do everything, no matter what, no matter how vile, no matter how dumb, no matter how evil, do everything the state says. If that's what Peter and Paul meant, why were they martyred? Why would you presume to know more about what those words mean than the men who wrote them? Don't you often criticize Catholics for trusting the words of priests and bishops and popes about what the Bible means more than the Bible itself? Well, Lottie, frickin' da! Guess what you just did? That. Self-awareness much. I don't believe tradition is holy writ or inspired, but I do think it is wise and valuable. It is wise and valuable to learn from the struggles and the sufferings and the successes of those spirit-filled believers who came before us. Who had to, who had to live out long before our mommy and daddy had a, looked at each other winsomely. They had to understand and live out what it meant for centuries to be in this world and not of it. To live as if they were in a, a new kingdom, not of this world. Would it not be wise to know how they did it? Whether they did it well or not. To learn from those mistakes. To paraphrase Peter here, there is no challenge to the faith, maybe beyond certain contemporary technological advancements, that our brotherhood hasn't already faced in the world. Well, Steve, you know, they, they didn't have smartphones where, you know, they get porn. True. But they actually could just go right down the street to the temple of Artemis, Diana, Venus, and just like, you know, watch the show in real time. They, they could do that. Wasn't much of a walk to them so it wasn't as instantly accessible but it was fairly accessible why not learn from the mistakes and the triumphs of those who came before us why not look to see how the holy spirit guided those who came before us to work out their salvation with fear and trembling here this side of heaven why, why not learn those things let me give you an example luther 
Luther faced the bubonic plague in the summer, late summer of 1527. It came to Wittenberg, Germany, where by this point in time, he was essentially, he was basically the Pope of Wittenberg at this point in his history. He was the, the leading figure of authority. When others fled, Luther chose to stay. He even penned an open letter at the time titled, Whether One May Flee from a Deadly Plague. That was the name of the open letter. He used it to encourage and equip his fellow believers during such a trying time. Do you think, I don't know, could there be any wisdom to be found in how the guy that launched our Reformation in the first place how he chose to confront a far greater peril. I mean, depending on what the sanitary conditions were of a village or town, the bubonic plague could kill 60% of the people within a short amount of time. We are sitting here right now in the most technologically advanced civilization that has ever been permitted by God to grace his creation. And we are losing our damn minds because this might have a, the initial model said it might kill 1% of our population. The initial, wasn't that what the initial apocalyptic model said? Yes. Was about 1% could die. And, and we looked at each other and said, where's Denethor when you need him to issue the uh, evac? Stay home, shut it down. Bubonic plague could kill up to 60%. You were lucky in your town if it only got 30% of you. Those folks knew when to panic. And so Luther gives four main pieces of advice in this letter. Just to summarize it for you. Number one, practice good hygiene. Wash your hands a lot. Literally writes that. Set up hospitals for the sick. Number two, refuse unnecessary large gatherings. Some measure of social distancing. Don't unnecessarily risk further contamination. But understand, understand, this is centuries before running water, before septic, before electricity. We didn't, they didn't even have, they, <laughs> they didn't have chairs and they didn't sit in church yet. Let alone be able to take potty breaks, guys. Next, he instructed believers, you are not to leave your post serving others without a replacement. You are not allowed to just blatantly flee. If you were a father, mother, teacher, caregiver of any kind, you could not leave your caregiving post, Luther deemed it so, you could not leave without a replacement because ultimately the Christian's citizenship is not of this world and like our Messiah, our Savior, laid down his life for us. We lay down our lives for other people. So he stayed, actually, in Wittenberg the whole time during the bubonic plague. He actually even kind of went a little name it and claim it, word of faith on you. Just saying, well, I believe because I'm doing the Lord's work that I won't get sick. I don't know if I necessarily buy that one, okay? I don't think, I'm not sure it, that's how it works. I mean, it can individually work. Like, I don't think that it just automatically works I'm pretty sure at least one of the healthcare workers in America that's tested positive for COVID-19 loves the Lord. You think at least one of them does probably? 
Thanks. Yeah, so I don't know that that's a general rule, but he he was pretty confident that it applied to him at least, if not his community. All right, but you weren't to leave even if it didn't. You were to stay and serve unless you had a capable replacement, because the Christian was to lay down his life for others anyway, the way his Lord laid down his life for you. And then lastly, you were to be prepared for your own death. You were to be you were to hear uh, the gospel. You were to administer the sacraments of baptism and communion to be prepared to meet your maker because we all die anyway. And this was never, never a better time to be reminded of that fact that you are to fear facing your maker without the, the blood and grace and mercy of Jesus Christ covering your sins. You were to fear that more than the bubonic plague. I think that's some pretty good advice for the most part, don't you? Yeah. Some wisdom there to take away. You know what that's called? That's called tradition. I, I think we are missing a lot of wisdom in the Western church today, particularly of the evangelical variety. Because we have vanquished tradition we have forgotten to paraphrase peter that there is no suffering that we are enduring that our brothers have not already endured in this world and probably far worse should we not learn from them should we not be inspired from them or by them and learn both from their successes and failures I've now teed it up for you, Erzin. The floor is now oh. yours. We confuse why we are special. We are special to God because we are created in his image and likeness. But we like to think we're special because of our uniqueness. That, that part of what I just said about created in his image and likeness, that's everybody. Mm -hmm. There's nothing unique about that. That's what we can't stand about this all the time. And starting with Lucifer on down. Oh, Where's the, I'm unique. Look at all that rabble over there. You want so badly to be unique. And therefore you make all the things, the fear, the emotion, you make it all unique. Mine is special. You clutch it so tight. But the same stuff going on right across the street with the person that you think that's dumb. You think that's ridiculous. You, you call people names because of that. But yours is so incredibly unique. So I can't echo enough Steve's point right there. God loves you despite all that nonsense. Cast it aside. Join your brothers into the common hood of, of that and overcome it, not anoint it. We're going to talk to somebody who took a stand uh, despite government telling him no. David Benham's going to join us when we come back here to start off Hour 2 next. And we're back with Hour 2 live and on demand here on Blaze TV, radio, and podcast. Steve Dace alongside Todd Erzin and Aaron McIntyre. Steve at stevedace.com is how you can email us, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at Steve Dace Show. If you do listen to the podcast each day, if you wouldn't mind leaving us a five-star review, would greatly appreciate that because the more of those we get, it helps the show to grow. If you haven't left us one yet, what are you waiting for? It's not like we're doing anything else right now, right? 
Hey, I'm not too proud to beg. I think all of you know that about me by now. Thank you to the thousands of you that have left us those five-star reviews already. Please keep them coming because it makes it more likely we get to do, continue to do this show. And I think the last thing America needs right now is another unemployment claim. All right. Bottom of the hour, we're going to get to our three non-political questions. Try to lighten the mood here a little bit on the show, given everything else that we are forced to discuss and talk about these days. But earlier this week, we showed you this video. That abortion clinic exceeds the number of 10. And we are an essential, federally recognized nonprofit charity that helps at-risk mothers and babies. We are within our rights to be here. You know that I'm. Yes, sir. It's in my vehicle. You know that we're doing the right thing. Did you need to escort me? You to need to go to the park and make arrests. Okay, so who has their citation? I'm getting hers in just a second. She should get your ID. Sir, you know we are a federally recognized charity. I'll tell you. We wouldn't be doing this if we were not acting we, under the advice of our attorney. We, we have, I know you're acting under the advice right. of your attorney. We have the authority we to be here. If feel like we had firm legal standing, I understand. we would not be doing this. I understand, and I appreciate your service. That's David Benham, who joins us now here on the show, an old friend of the show. It's been too long, brother. How are you? Man, I'm doing great. Good to see your face and hear your voice again, Steve. So the, I want to give you this. I want to give you an affirmation to start out with, if I could. All right. One of my uh, one of my pastors once described uh, meekness as power under control. And and I've never it's rare in America today when when uh, what's masculinity, what's toxic masculinity. So I don't think there's any such thing as toxic masculinity. I think there's just masculinity and then toxic men. Right. Yeah. But but what does meekness look like? What's power under control? This notion that I have to be, you know, that you got to call the jerk store and find out they're all out of me. That's one way to do this. Right. Or the other way to do this, just be a complete candy, candied rear end pansy yeah. and let him let myself get walked over. You didn't fall for any of either one of those traps. Brother, that was one of the best examples I have seen in modern American masculinity of meekness. So I wanted to tell you that first and foremost. Man, man that really, uh, I appreciate that. I, I don't get choked up very often. Um, wow, that really, that really just touched me right there. I, I'm, I'm just so uh, gripped for my country, Steve, to be honest. And um, I think about my kids. I think about my children's children. And um, we're, I've never been arrested a day in my life. And I, I mean, I fought back the tears. And I really hate the fact that you made me cry like that. <laughs> but it's, we're in a moment, we're in a moment, Steve, where, uh, I mean, our rights are being taken from us. And I wasn't leading a protest. I wasn't leading some demonstration like they're trying to say that I was. And, uh, you know, it, it men of courage really need to rise up right now. I mean, this is really a gut check for us as Americans and also for me as a believer. What are we made of? What What's inside of us? And I, you know, the fact that I could even be meek and be even considered meek is only the power of the Holy Spirit inside of me and uh, just the Lord working through a sinner like me. And uh, but I'm, I'm absolutely just like you and just like millions of other Americans around the world or uh, around the country. And especially men, men right now, humble servant leaders, 
That's what we're called to be. This whole idea of toxic masculinity and all that stuff and emasculating men. Listen, now's the time for men to lay their lives down and be humble servant leaders. So, Steve, I really appreciate you saying that. And uh, I just want to deflect that glory back to the Lord. If he could use me, he can use anybody. Amen. And, you know, thank you for letting him use you as that example. Take our audience now. Give the rest of the backstory here. We, we told them about this story when it first emerged a few days ago, but refresh their memories, David, who, wh- the group you were with, where you were at, yeah. at you, you know, you guys were practicing the, the CDC, social distancing guidelines, things of they, that nature. Can you just kind of give us uh, the yeah. facts of the matter? And see, we didn't even have to practice those because we're an essential organization. However, in Charlotte, North Carolina, the busiest abortion facility in the Southeast, um, is deemed an essential, all abortion uh, facilities in North Carolina are deemed essential businesses. Uh, so under the COVID laws, abortion facilities are essential. Well, also inside the COVID laws, the local ordinances and the state statutes have provisions for private or public charities that provide social services. I am the uh, founder and chairman of the board of Cities for Life. And we have, we are a public charity, federally recognized. We've had over 5,000 mothers since 2010 plugged into our network, and we are there to help them. We are there to help them face unplanned pregnancies by giving them, helping them with housing assistance, baby showers, medical needs if they need it, uh, adoption services, I mean, uh, domestic abuse issues. We help them through all of these things. So I get a phone call Saturday morning, hey, David, they're threatening our sidewalk counselors down here. Whenever the COVID law came out, we said, okay, we're, we are well within the essential organizations. However, let's go above board and let's go to a skeleton crew with our sidewalk counselors and let's make sure we stay socially distant. So we actually drew on the sidewalk with sidewalk chalk to make sure our sidewalk counselors stayed socially distant with hand sanitizer. We only had three sidewalk counselors there. Also, there was a pregnancy center there uh, on the scene with a mobile RV unit uh, where they do sonograms and they only had two technicians there. So I arrived and I stood across the street. So I was so distant from everybody and I had my son filming and uh, and the officer comes up to me and says, sir, you can't be here. And I said, I'm sorry. First of all, there's not more than 10 people here. I'm not gathering. I'm not creating a gathering or staging a protest. And we have. Uh, sidewalk counselors across the street that are all socially distant. And in addition, we are a federally recognized pri- a public charity. You cannot tell us to leave. And he said, sir, I'm going to tell you to leave. And he says, and I wouldn't do this if I wasn't acting under under the advice of my attorney. And so I'm telling you, he's getting advice. These The police are getting advice from those folks above them. And they're coming together and they're going after Christian, pro-life Christian voices. And they're trampling on our rights. And so that's why I said in the video, as you continue to watch it, I said, if it's really about 10 people gathered, go to the park Mm -hmm. and make the rest. I was looking inside the abortion facility. There was way more than 10 people. They're in the waiting room there. Nobody's socially distant. And yet they're targeting us simply because of our message. That's why they're targeting us. The reason I wanted you to lay those facts out, David, is because we're having a lot of conversations right now about what does Romans 13 mean? What, what does it mean to honor the king, as Peter says? What does it mean to, to honor the civil authority uh, that's been established by God, as, as Paul says? What's the context of that? Um, because I think one of the key phrases in that chapter is to give honor to those whom honor is due. Right? Mm, right. That that the reason Nero cut Paul's head off is Nero demanded an honor from Paul that Nero wasn't due. 
Paul was willing to honor every other civil law that Nero put upon him, including, including house arrest. He did it all. Okay, but when Nero demanded a level of honor that belongs to the Lord and not to him, Paul said no. And that's why he lost his head. Yeah. And, and, and so there's this idea that we, again, another false choice. We either become these uh, persistent zealot rabble rousers, um, troublemakers, never satisfied. We protest everything, even the sanitation tax, everything. Okay. Or we just become a little statist with Bible verses and do whatever Caesar says, because yeah. that's the proper reading of that. Yeah. What, what yeah. I, what I see you doing there it, it is first, you know, Paul Peter or Paul says, when at all possible, Live in peace with everyone. That was where I was going. Yep. That's right. You you took it up. You took the initiative to to grant the state accommodations it wasn't even asking for in order to have to in order to be a peacemaker whenever possible. But then ultimately, when it said you must quit your ministry, that's, that's right. when the only answer, therefore, is you're you're not owed that honor, and the answer is no. That's exactly right. And, you know, it's funny when you started talking about Romans 13, I was about to say, well, the context of Romans 13 is Romans 12, where it says, as far as it depends on you, Mm -hmm. be at peace with all men. So as far as it depended on Cities for Life and our organization, we practiced social distancing and went above and beyond what we had to do just because we believe we're in a global pandemic. We support our government. We support all of these things. I don't want anybody getting sick. I'm practicing social distancing myself with my family. So we're not rabble rousers. I'm not trying to hurt people. I have, we had 1.8 million people hitting our Facebook page. And I can't tell you the overwhelming majority supports us, but there's just so many people. And I call them pixie stick Christians that are like, you need to just stay at home and you need to care for your neighbor. And I'm like, Whoa, hold on a second. First of all, if you go to a grocery store, you're putting people in danger. Mm-hmm. Don't, don't, uh, you know, throw your virtue signaling on me. But we were practicing these social distancing and we were doing our dead level best to be at peace. And I tried to reason with that officer. And I knew it wasn't the officer. He's just acting based on what the mayor's office, the governor, the city attorney and the city council in Charlotte. And unfortunately, now the Charlotte Observer, they got together after my arrest They get together and they circulate this story that I led a protest of 50 people, literally. I mean, you saw me there getting arrested. There wasn't anyone around me. It is just crazy what they're trying to do. I think what's been fascinating to watch is the social experiment of all of this. The, how, how, you know, we've been warned in the past as believers in this country that the God-given freedoms that we have, the God-given rights that, that our government acknowledges, not to take them for granted, that they can be taken away. And, and I think we have forgotten what generations of believers going back to those first Puritans that got on the Mayflower, what they yeah. had to suffer and sacrifice to, to create the notion of a country founded on rights that come from the God of the Bible. Therefore, no man-made government can take away that which God alone ordains. That's right. What, what, what it cost them and those generations, those framing generations to pass this on to us. And I think what's been fascinating to watch in a tragic way 
Um, I'm not shocked or surprised by the petty tyrannies. I mean, that's that's government throughout the ages. You know, the father who was playing t-ball in a 40-acre park, just him and his daughter, and he gets cuffed to a pole in front of his kid. Stuff like that. That's that's history. History is full of this level of of, of tyranny, petty to otherwise. What I think is fascinating in a tragic way is as as fast as you can lose your freedoms, apparently you can give them up even faster. That's exactly and, and that's what's been shocking to me is you know now over the last couple of weeks when more and more data is coming in showing a lot of these models are frankly questionable at best when I even just was studying them doing what I do for a living data analysis research and I'm like I don't think this math adds up I don't agree with their assumptions my the amount of people who came to me and said I wasn't even permitted to ask these questions now Here's the thing, too. At the same time I'm doing it, David, I didn't let my kids uh, go to their grandparents' house across town for 15 days yeah. to make sure they were they were symptom-free when they came home from school. We did we bought a month's worth of groceries. We've sanitized our house at least three times. So yeah, I'm actually totally. doing what they're recommending me, but I also have the right as an American to question why you're imposing on my freedom and to make sure that your rationale adds up. Now, more and more of my audience is saying to me, keep doing it, but when I first started doing this, there were plenty of people in my own audience that said, why would you even dare question the experts? As if we, we, yeah. we, that's, we, we're, we're under the reign of some, pl- uh, some plutocracy and not free men and women. That's exactly what we're seeing. And, you know, was it not Stalin that said, uh, probe with the bayonet, if you meet mush, push it through. If you, if you meet steel, pull it back. And that's what we're seeing right now. It's, it's like probing with the bayonet. It's like we're just giving it up. Like just, okay, trust the experts. I don't do that for my marriage. I don't do that with my kids. I, I don't do that with my own personal health. I get multiple opinions, but we are just giving it up. And, you know, Steve, I think it's really interesting, given the context that we're having this conversation of me being arrested in front of an abortion facility, um, I really believe rights and responsibility are tied together. And we demanded we want our rights, and yet, especially we as believers, are not exercising our responsibility to the most vulnerable among us. You know, we have drastically as Americans changed and altered our behavior to protect ourselves. But will we drastically alter our behavior when we come out of this to protect the most vulnerable among us? Mm. The, the statistics of the unborn being killed far are greater than the statistics of the COVID uh, crisis issue uh, that has taken lives. And while this is a global pandemic, we still can't give our rights up. And so we're seeing just huge government overreach. I mean, just utilizing, was it Saul Alinsky or Rahm Emanuel? I don't remember who said, never let a crisis go to waste. Mm -hmm. We can't sit by. That's the reason why I was so gripped with tears. It's just like, We can't sit by. I don't want my kids to grow up like this. So we have to stand and stand now. That's why I'm so thankful. You know, I I come on a show like yours and I I see the headlines and the banners and everything about standing for truth and all of these things, because the the knowledge of the truth is what's going to set us free here. You're sitting there in North Carolina, heart of the Bible Belt. Billy Graham Association. You can't go there. You can't take your family there on a you know on a Good Friday or an Easter uh, to remember the greatest ev- the, the the greatest evangelist probably in the world in the last hundred years. You can't do that. I I can't go and take part in the church's sacraments 
on Easter. And I understand that the church is not a, bu- a building, David. I, I understand that it's, I'm, I'm an evangelical. I understand the, the doctrine of the priesthood of every believer. I also understand, though, that God commanded his people to build him tabernacles, temples. The New Testament says, don't give up meeting together. So this idea that this is just of, of can be dull, done into perpetuity virtually is just not, I don't believe, a, a biblical notion either. But I'm not arguing necessarily for people to open all their churches up. The point I'm making is I can't go and take part in the church's sacraments this Easter in North Carolina, in the heart of the Bible Belt. But I can go to an abortion clinic and take part in the state's sacrament of child sacrifice. Yeah. Now, you could argue that maybe I shouldn't be allowed to do either one, or if I can do one, then I should be able to do the other, I guess, from an opposing worldview standpoint. What you cannot, though, as a Christian abide, in my view, is that you can do the killing, but not the worship. You can say, hey, in a pluralistic society, we, we have a political process where we, we, we iron out these differences, and that's why right now both of these viewpoints are being accommodated. I don't necessarily agree with that to the, that extent, but you could say that and be reasonable. You could say, you know what, right now it's not safe for you to go either place, so don't go. You could say that and be reasonable. But as a believer, how can you consider it to be reasonable that I can go and kill my child, but I cannot take my child to receive communion on Resurrection Sunday. How do I reconcile that as reasonable as a believer, David? You can't reconcile that as reasonable as a believer. Like we said at the very beginning, as far as it depends on us, let's be at peace with all men. We're not talking about these big, massive social gatherings. However, Home Depot, this is just a very simple way for me to think about this. You go to Home Depot or Lowe's here in, in, in North Carolina's Lowe's everywhere. That is deemed an essential business where any type of household thing that you might need. And so I went there right after I was released from uh, jail on Saturday. I went to the Home Depot with my wife. There had to have been a thousand people there. Everybody all squunched up to each other, getting plants and carrying trees and, and lawnmowers and bags of mulch and weed killer and all this stuff. And you know what struck me? Psalm 127, unless the Lord builds the house, those that build it labor in vain. If doing household chores is essential, then the house of our heart, then the house of worship is essential, even more so. So look, I, I, like, I, like we said, I'm, I'm not saying we got all mass gathered together, but the very essence of biblical Christianity is community. And so what we're seeing is a separating of community. And so once we start seeing, like, it seems to me, Steve, and now I'm kind of a little going off topic here, jumping on a soapbox, but it sure seems to me like the It's the Steve Day Show. Everybody listening and watching is used to it. Go ahead. Uh, But it it sure seems to me, and I'm not a pontificator or a pundit or any of this stuff, but it sure seems to me that they really, the, the governmental leaders pushing this are really kind of excited about shutting down the houses of worship and then hearing mayor de blasio say okay well synagogues and churches will shut you down for good but they leave mosques open Mm -hmm. look i just look i'm not targeting mosque whatever but don't be targeting the christians in the synagogues then so i mean this is you you can still go you can still go ride the subway in new york city right now david you could ride it in new york city right now but you can't go to church 
And you can go to an abortion facility and you can be in that waiting room around all these people and you walk out of that facility. And I've listen, we've been doing this 10 years. Over 5,000 mothers have chosen our services. I've watched this over and over and over again. They'll walk out after they get an abortion. They walk out. They have no one to help them. None. They don't have Planned Parenthood's not helping them. The abortionist is not helping them. But guess who they need help from us? Whether you got an abortion or not, you get help from us. And the thousands of sidewalk counselors and pregnancy centers all across this country are doing this. And so what the governors are doing and what the mayors are doing is they're saying, you know what, ma'am, facing the unwanted pregnancy or the unplanned pregnancy, you can go and get pregnancy. You can or excuse me, you can go and get an abortion, but we're not we're going to take away the rights. We're going to take away the services that are going to be there for you when you need them. That is cruel. That is vindictive. That is just straight up demonic. And it's wrong. So we have drawn a line and saying we are not going to move. We're going back there every single day and they're not going to stop us. Dave, before we let you go, let our audience know uh, how they can follow you guys' work. I think you and your brother, I think I saw on Twitter, you guys just launched another your own podcast or something along those yeah. lines, right? Yeah. So Thanks by all means, self-promote. Our audience is used to that too. Oh, I love it. Thank you for that. Hey, I'm an identical twin. Everybody goes, where was your brother? And I'm like, well, he's a coward. No, he wasn't. We, we just launched expert ownership, how to own a business without it owning you. And now we pivoted through the COVID crisis. It's an online course, how to own a business in the midst of an economic downturn, maybe even an economic meltdown. And so that's my brother and I, we're, we're small business owners. We've had hundreds of offices and we, we help business owners thrive in the midst of all this. But you know, Steve, it's not about just making income. It's about making an impact. And so when all of a sudden this happened, Jason and I, Jason said, David, what are we going to do? And I said, bro, I'm going down there. And he's like, okay, go for it. And I'm so thankful that, you know what? I don't love my business. I don't love my online course. I spent hundreds, thousands of dollars producing it very well. It's got all kinds of amazing help for business owners. But you know what? When that, when I heard that trumpet, I was like, "Uh uh-uh. There's something inside of me, Steve, that is far greater than wanting to make income and having all this image and, you know, uh, image and income and influence. And if I lose all of that, it's okay. I'm going to be a voice for the voiceless and I want to stand with courage. So thank you for letting us promote it. Go to expertownership.com or benhambrothers.com. Good to see you, brother. Tell your brother I said hello. All right. I will. And uh, we won't wait too long before we do this again. Okay. God God bless. bless. Happy Easter. Okay. Take care. All right, gentlemen, your thoughts on that conversation. That's just a dude right there. Um, if I was about to storm the beaches at Normandy, I'd want that to be the guy I talked to beforehand. I mean, just a man in full. Listen, we are all, no matter where we are in our walk as Christians, and let alone not having that guiding light, you, you don't know until you enter the arena if you're going to be able to stand the fire. We want to think we can, but that's why you need to go down there. there there is simply no choice because for every David Benham, we've got 10 of the opposite right now who are Christian conservative blue checks in many respects. Just one month ago, we would have thought more or less would have been talking the same talk as David. But right now, all you can smell is fear from them. They are aggressively fearful, tearing down all those who act like David. They won't do it directly to their faces. They're being very passive aggressive about it, but they're still trying to tear them down because they can't stand their own weakness. None of us on our own are capable of doing what David did. But he said he trusted the Holy Spirit and he went anyways. Go to Nineveh. 
I've been saying that for a while this last this last month. We're called to go and many are finding any reason possible to sit around and suck their thumbs and trust whatever ridiculous idol they had fashioned. And it had been there before coronavirus. They had been fashioning it. They just lied to themselves about it. We need to destroy those idols and destroy them white, right quick so we can be men like David Benham. Yeah, that's well said, Todd. And here's the reality as well. The longer this thing goes on, the more we are going to need men like David. And when I say like David, I'm looking into the camera and I'm looking right at you. At yes, yes, you. I, I'm looking at you because here's here's the reality of the situation as well. If you're not at some point because of everything that we just talked about at the beginning of the show and the the ridiculous overreach that we just got done talking about now, the ridiculous nature of bureaucratic doubling down and what that means for the average citizen, that Colorado dad who got arrested in front of his his daughter, that's just one example. The the, the more we go on in this, the more examples of light uh, of that that, that that we're going to see, that we're going to see. But here's the reality. If people just and not in a and when I say this, I know a lot of peddlers of uh, porn, you know, of panic porn are going to say, well, you just want people to start licking doorknobs. No, I'm not saying that. I'm not saying be irresponsible, but I'm just saying the longer this goes along, people aren't going to have any other choice but to just defy this. Mm -hmm. You can't hide from this virus forever. You can't hide from most viruses forever. That doesn't mean it's not serious. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't practice just common sense things for those who are the most vulnerable. But to but to arrest a guy standing standing yards away from anybody else for witnessing to women going in that might be killing their babies, to arrest a dad for for playing t-ball with his daughter at a park. To arrest a pastor, I, I don't, I don't care whether or not you think he's a kook for having for having a a, a, a service on Sunday like they did in Tampa a couple weeks ago. Guys, that's only going to get worse unless people like you that are listening to this right now are willing to stand up and act like David. Because here's the here's also the reality: uh, they can't arrest all of us. That's I, I right. I don't think that there's enough room in the jails. So there's that. There's that encouragement for you. It just takes a few, though. It just takes a few. And I know there are some listening. At least I hope so. I think, you know, those of you that are that have been asking me, well, then what do we do? How do we rise up? I mean, I don't know. How did the, how did the generations before us, what did, what did they do? It, it, they didn't just sit in their homes. You know, I mean, they rose up. What does rise up mean? It, it means rise up. That, that's what it means. What is, and to go back to what David and I talked about that from, from Paul's admonishment, as much as it's up to you, when at all possible, live in peace with everyone. I'm not saying we necessarily just jump right to, let's just have a massive march on Washington, okay? We don't have to go zero to 60. But can we, we do need to tap the gas here a little bit. We need to press the gas down a little bit. Start asking. I had a gentleman from Missouri who's an activist say, hey, I'm going before, we're talking to state legislators right now. What, do you, what should I ask them? What's the end game? Ask them. 
What what benchmarks, milestones must be hit? Give me specifics for me to get my country back, for me to open my business back up, for me to have my job back, for me to get my kids uh, a chance at a senior prom or spring sports. All right. What what is it? What is what is it? What are the milestones? What what we are entitled to know that because we're the ones making all the preemptive sacrifice here. So what are the what are the benchmarks milestones? Start asking for those specifics. Pester your city councils, your mayors, your governors, your legislators, your members of Congress. Start asking what how do I get this back? Call the White House, email them. Post it on your Facebook, your Twitter, your Instagram, all your social media. What what's a win look like? What is it? When do we know we've won? When do we get our life back? And they better have an answer other than, I don't know. Or when Anthony Fauci says so. Did you vote for Anthony Fauci for a dang thing? Was he on any of your ballots ever? No? Well, then it's actually going to be up to the people you voted for to tell you. Make them tell you. That's the first step right there. Ask them to do their jobs. When do we get out of this? Do you know the answer? And that answer determines whether you got to march on Washington or not. So you'll recall that we had to preemptively give up our way of life, shutter the churches, stymie the economy, and hand over our freedoms to flatten the curve so that the healthcare system would not get overrun, correct? Correct. And just now during the break, I was reading stories of mass layoffs and the, let me check my notes here. Confirmed. Uh, the healthcare system? Yes. Because many hospitals and clinics are empty. They don't have business. And so they're... They're doing mass mass layoffs? Correct. That's some cosmic poop, yo. That is some cosmic poop right there. I don't... I won't even attempt to add any further editorial comment to that. I... I that... If you don't it, realize... It, it would... It would any further commentary from me would just diminish its effectiveness as a standalone statement. Yeah, if you don't realize after that you've you've played yourself, we just need to retire that entire gift because it's just incapable of penetrating your soul. That's it. Let's get to three non-political questions brought to you by Riduzone. All right, reality check. How many of you made a New Year's resolution to diet and lose weight? And then you realized after about uh, a day or two or a week or so, eh, tougher than I thought. That's because you really need a lifestyle change. You got to get those portions and cravings under control, especially right now, since we're all losing our jobs because they were apparently all unnecessary. And now thousands of jobs in the healthcare industry were unnecessary too because we've cured heart attacks and strokes and heart disease. Not going on right now. That's kind of cool. All right. So 
Um, if you're sitting around doing nothing and you're worried about little Debbie becoming Chunky Debbie, uh, make sure you check out Riduzone. It's the only FDA-accepted product that includes OEA. That's the naturally occurring molecule that helps you feel full faster, burning stored fat while reducing your calorie intake at the same time. And you can only get Riduzone on its website at riduzone.com. And you might think, hey, Steve, man, I'm trying to work out exercise at home. I'm going for runs. That's great. Exercise is, is phenomenal. Uh, but it has far more health benefits than just losing weight. Okay, so ultimately, you cannot out-train a bad diet. All right, so give Riduzone a shot right now, and and they'll make they'll make it as easy as possible to do so. Up to sixty five percent off. That's that's an incredible discount. Up to sixty five percent off right now, plus free shipping too. Up to sixty five percent off plus free shipping when you go to Riduzone.com. That's R I D U Z O N E. R-I-D-U-Z-O-N-E, but you got to use the promo code Steve. Promo code Steve at RidUZone.com. We all have questions. Who am I? Why am I here? Where am I going? Who am I? A search and a question of identity. Why am I here? A question of meaning and purpose. Where am I going? Question of destiny. Some better than others. What sort of morality or proto-morality would you expect to find in a chimpanzee troop? Injecting some levity into the demise of Western civilization. It's three questions on the Steve Day Show. We need a little break from the uh, from the virus, uh, and I haven't talked very much on this show, so I guess it's time that I actually pull my weight around here. Three non-political questions on the Steve Day Show. Question number one, if you could teach a college course based on either sports and fitness, pop culture, or cooking and food, which course would you teach and why? I would teach pop culture without hesitation because it's the most influential platform in America today. And there's not a close second. It's more influential than what goes on in the boardroom, in the bedroom, in the classroom, at the dinner table, um, in the sanctuary. It is the most influential sector in American culture today. Uh, it's where the vast majority of ideas get formed and communicated. So I would absolutely choose to, ch to teach a class on pop culture for that reason. Yeah, I, just going through uh, Lost, the show, with two of my daughters, the, the way you can engage conversation through that show, you could have covered all of Western civilization just by following it and, and watching it, it. And it darn near tried. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's amazing. And and there's opportunities in all other shows to, it's like Steve says, if you if if you are, are funny, you can be vicious. Mm -hmm. Well, if, if it's if it's in pop culture, there's there's a way to engage a conversation where you can get them going in a direction that they otherwise wouldn't go. I think for me, uh, I'm going to be the odd person out here because to the surprise of no one. Yeah, no, I think I'd probably teach a class on on uh, on on football, maybe NCAA uh, football 2014. That would be fun. I'm an expert at that. And I feel like I could teach a class pretty well on that. Question number two. From David Benham calling men <laughs> Sorry, to stand no. to yeah. Aaron. I, I'd like to teach a class on a seven-year-old video game. Is it, Yeah, it is seven years old now. Holy cow. Uh, question number two. <laughs> what's your Mount Rushmore of horror movies? Ah, that's a good question. The Omen, I think, is the, is the best horror film ever made. So it would be on my list for sure. Um, 
I, I, the Exorcist has a great 30 minutes. I think the rest of the movie is just kind of, you know, kind of that slow burn. When, when a reviewer says oh, this movie is a slow burn, can I translate that to you? That it, it looks really good. The acting's really good, but I'm still kind of bored. That's what slow burn means. Okay. Then I'm just kind of, I'm assuming given the way that it looks and how well it's acted, that at some point something cool is going to happen. That, that's, that's what, when they say a movie is a slow burn, that's what it means. I think, I think, you know, the first hours or a half or so of the exorcist is kind of a slow burn. Those last 30 minutes though, pack a wallop. Okay. So, um, it, it absolutely belongs on the list. Um, I would put, oh man, this is a tough question. Um, I'll put the Bela Lugosi Dracula movie on the Mount Rushmore because it or the Boris Karloff Frankenstein film, they were the first two out of the gate in the talkie era of Universal's major, you know, um, horror franchises, but particularly Bela Lugosi's performance as Dracula. That's iconic. I mean, it, it has been used as a staple emulated for, uh, for generations now. Um, so I would, I would put that on the list as well at number three. Um, and then for number four, this is, is, this is always where I get stuck, isn't it? Well, you're trying to be perfect. Yeah, because the first three I can usually kind of get you there and then get to the fourth one. And then I'm like, there's five, six, seven things I, I want to put at the number four spot. You know, um, I'm going to let you go and then I'm going to think of number four. That's typically well, what I do too, is I let you go while I think of what my number four is. Um, let's see. I would put Silence of the Lambs. That's uh, on mine as well. Yeah. I would put seven. I just watched Seven again with my oldest about a month ago. Really? Because she's old enough to watch it now. And it, it, it was really good. Oh, it, it was really good. She loved it. Um, it was better than I remembered it being. I remembered at the time thinking it's okay, but not as good as I was hoping it was going to be. Watching it again, it's better than I thought. I cannot believe I didn't think of this one right away, what my number four is. The Shining is number four. Yeah, that's on mine as well. Yeah, The Shining is number four. In fact, The Shining's probably my number two right after The Omen. I think those are the two greatest horror films ever made. The Exorcist has the most impactful horror scene of all time. Uh, and then I would put Bela Lugosi's Dracula in there just because of of how iconic that was and, and continues to be. But I will say, I think the, I think the, the best horror film that's been made in at least the last 20 years, the first conjuring film is really well done, but heredity or hereditary as well. hereditary yeah. is the best horror film that's been done in the 21st century. That, that film is wrong on many levels in all the right ways. Uh, I would put, and I, th I would make the same arguments as you would putting uh, you would to make uh, the Exorcist or any of those movies on here, and rightly so. I would put the Passion of the Christ on here. Interesting. It's it's meant to be a horror film. That's, that, it's designed. Yeah. That's a that's a counterintuitive play that I I've, I've, I respect that play. I like it. Yeah. Uh, for me, it's The Shining, Hereditary, um, 
signs actually that was horrifying to me when i watched that i can say we just watched that again for a couple of months ago that's really good that drove my and that drove my my, that drove me crazy i should say um and then silence of the lambs as well so that's my four uh let's see number three would you rather have an eight team college football playoff with two dominant teams or a four-team playoff with four evenly matched teams um and I mean playoff in the playoff, not the current. Can you say the, eight, the first part again? Eight so teams. Eight, how did you qualify an that? Eight team playoff. Yeah. Involving two dominant teams, oh, right. or four team actual playoff, not an invitational, with four evenly matched teams. Do you want to answer this one first? Or you want me to go first? It, it's it's the latter. The rest is just a a money grab, and you know, let's. There's more games, and more is always better. And no, that's gluttony. It's, it's, it's definitely, it, and it's, the reason people are frustrated now, besides the gluttonous part of it, is because we've, we fell to the pattern where Alabama and Clemson and Ohio State keep going over and over and over again. If we had something closer to uh, a randomness to it, where there were more teams coming in, well, we would be much, much happier about how things are right now. But people are just getting, for, oh, wait, we're going to watch Clemson play Alabama again? Fantastic. They're getting bored. That's why I have the opposite answer is what you just said. See, I don't think you may have, you know, the, I remember the very first year of the, of the, of the 14 playoff. And you had Oregon, uh, you know, with the Heisman Trophy winner, Marcus Mariota. Uh, You had Florida State, State undefeated, reigning national champion with Jameis Winston. Um, You had uh, Alabama, the the team of the decade under Nick Saban. And then you had Ohio State that was considered the weak sister uh, of whether they deserved to be in that a lot of people think at the time just got in, if you remember, because they wanted that brand in there. And that Baylor and or TC who shared the Big 12 title were more deserving, but... They housed us 59 to nothing. And, yeah, they, yep. you know. and that gave the committee the excuse it could have to have one of the Cadillac brands in there with all these other Cadillac brands. And, and people thought, hey, it could be like this every year. And that's actually not what's happened. Um, you, had, you, had a, you had a somewhat competitive semifinal with Alabama, uh, in, in Ohio State that year, most of the semifinals have not even been competitive because I don't think you can create with just four teams that level of egalitarian uh, or that because I don't believe in egalitarianism, that level of democratization, I don't think is possible. What's happened with college football, and I didn't think it was possible. Because this has always been a sport that's been dominated by its dynasties and its traditional rivalries and traditional powers, right? Well, you've taken a fan base that's used to seeing Pete Carroll's USC go after year after year and Miami under three different coaches year after year and Florida State under Bobby Bowden being the, the top four 15 years in a row and you know Notre Dame post-World War II in Michigan when I think... I think Notre Dame and Michigan post-World War II won five of the six national championships after World War II. We're used to seeing stuff like that. And, and so if you have taken a fan base that is used to this and turned them against you, I think that speaks volumes to the problem with your system. Because college football fans know what they're getting into. They're getting into a certain level of dynastic dominance. That's part of the game. That That's... Baked into the cake of college football. It's tough to it's tough for you for a lot of teams to be consistently good at a sport that requires 22 good players at the exact same time. However, 
we've now got a full-blown plutocracy now. And the amount of talent three or four teams are now acquiring compared to everybody else in college football is, it's, it is a chasm. And it's just not good for a sport to have that level of plutocratic dominance. The NFL became the, the most dominant sports entity of this era because it understood parity. Real parity isn't watering yourself down. Real parity is, is making it possible for you to believe you could ultimately rise up. And college football right now does not have that. And I think what the sport needs to understand is now it no longer has a regular season that serves the play or has a playoff that serves the regular season, but a, a regular season has to serve its playoff. It needs to become more like the NFL. It needs more meaningful games. More teams in the playoff will mean we'll have more meaningful games at the end of the regular season, like you have in the NFL, you know, where you're watching teams you would not normally watch because you're like, hey, this could be for a, a playoff buy or a chance to get in to the playoffs. You don't have that now. You need more democratization so that people believe there's more of a chance that they could actually win, that they could go. Um, you don't have that now. What we have right now in college football is most of my life, really 10 or 12 teams any year could could win the national championship and everybody else knew they weren't playing for it. Right now, four or five teams at, at the most, and that's being kind, can do it. And, and here's the other thing too. Going to the Sugar Bowl doesn't mean what it meant when we were kids. Going to the Orange Bowl doesn't mean... So the amount of ways that a fan base could feel like your season meant something is, is, is just not there. The, it, it's not a coincidence that John Wooden dominated the era before they democratized college basketball. And what we have seen since then is a lot more teams can rise up and win and be successful. You know, the very first year they went to 64 teams, a number eight seed Villanova won the tournament that very first year. That's not a coincidence. I, I think they need to democratize the sport more. And I think the sport has become too plutocratic and it's hurting itself without enough meaningful games. So that's why I would go with the eight team model because that would put more emphasis back on the regular season by the fact if you win your conference, you play your way in. Well, Steve, what if Northwestern has three losses and upsets Ohio State in the Big Ten championship game? Well, they still had to win their division in the regular season to get there. And if by golly, they beat Ohio State on a neutral field, They've earned their way in. What's more, what's more earning your way in than you beat Ohio State in six in a sixty-minute football game? So, I, I think the sport desperately needs the playoff to expand. It is a playoff-driven sport now. That's just the reality now that they have opened this door. One thing about, I think you could get if you go to eight. I think you could actually get fewer meaningful games in the regular season right now. And you know, you because we we've talked about this before. The the cupcakes that that teams put on their list. And, and and but there's other teams that know that they're on the edge though, so they have to schedule, even though that they are a a big time uh, top five uh, conference program. They know they're not one of the blue bloods, so they got to put them on their schedule to try to get through them. To you're have that right. Win. You're right that there needs to be some form of scheduling yes. uniformity, like you have in the NFL too. Yes, but that's the next step. I think after we get to the step that I'm then talking about. But you're right that that would be an inherent weakness. You're right about that. I agree. All right, good question, Aaron. Three good questions, actually. Good ones. Ah, thanks. We're going to stick around and do some overtime for the rest of you. See you tomorrow. Until then, John 317. This is Steve Dace. On the Blaze Radio Network.